0: Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lanz. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. 1 Samuel chapter 4, as we continue our study through the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. Now, I want to give you a little background information. You know, chapters 1 through 3 was... The story of Hannah, and Eli, and, and uh, the pain in the neck that Pastor Michael called her, and, and then finally to Samuel. So we had all these characters that we learned a lot about, and they taught us some things. And uh, tonight we're going to get into a little different group of characters. There's a group of people called the Philistines, and they're going to be prominent in the narrative as we continue on here. So I want to just give you a little background on, on these folks. Who, who are these Philistines? Um, I'm reading this uh, straight to you right from the uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary. And, and this is what it says The Philistines, Israel's principal enemy during the period of the last of the Judges, and you can look in Judges 10, 6 through 8, 13, 1, and 16, or through 1631. If you want to go back and look at those sections of Judges, you can read about that. They were a non Semitic people whose origins were most likely in Crete or in some other part of the Aegean Sea. They came to Canaan in two different migrations, one as early as Abraham's time, 2000 B.C., and the other about 1200 B.C. They lived in five main towns on the southern Canaan coast, and they were Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, and Ashdod. Now, Gath is probably the most famous because we know who's the most famous Philistine. Yes, and he came from Gath. They were technologically advanced, pioneering in the use of iron and in other skills. The primary god of their pantheon was Dagon, a deity worshipped also in Upper Mesopotamia as a grain god. But some scholars suggest that the Philistine Dagon was represented as having a human torso, a human torso in the the upper body and a fish's tail. And they think that that may be because they were a seafaring group. Um, then they adapted them to the Semitic god of Dagon or Dagan, as it's known outside the Bible, because of their need to become a grain-producing people. Philistia itself, the land, um, that name uh, sounds similar to something, doesn't it? Philistine, and sounds similar to something we call today Palestine. And so many scholars believe that the original, you know, uh, Palestinians were these Philistines. The land was allotted to Israel, but it was never permanently occupied. You can read this in Joshua 13, Joshua 13, 2 and 3. It says, This is the land that remains, this is the land that remains all the regions of the Philistines and the Geshurites. Joshua 13, 2. So, though the Philistines are going to play a major role in what we study in the chapter today, they are not the main characters. Chapters 4 through 6 of 1 Samuel, there's actually one major character. The major character in the next three chapters of the Bible is the Ark of the Covenant, and all the next three chapters are going to be consumed with things that happen with the Ark of the Covenant. So I want us to begin, um, you're at 1 Samuel 4, but just get back a little bit, uh, 1 Samuel 3:19 through 21 and let's, let's catch back up here at the end of that chapter. In verse 19 it says, "...Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail." Verse 20, all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 1, thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So what we're seeing here is that apparently the word got out to all of Israel that Samuel had now been anointed as the prophet of Israel, and it went to uh, everywhere throughout the regions of Israel. Now, uh, scholars believe that this may also refer to the fact, not only that they knew now that Samuel was the prophet, but also they may have heard it by hearing what the first words of the Lord were to Samuel. And if you remember back in chapter 3, what were those first words to Samuel? Well, they were words of judgment. Remember? Judgment on the house of Eli. That was the first prophecy that Samuel got. Now remember, he was probably around 12 years old and he received this uh, very tough prophecy and yet Eli received the prophecy and said, you know, if that's the Lord's will, then that's the Lord's will. But that's all we're going to hear about Samuel for a while, and I think that you're going to find it it's a shame that's all we hear about Samuel for the next three chapters. So we're going to follow along here. It says next in verse uh, 1, that now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in a battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Afik. Now you're looking at that and go, why can't he read English? It's Afek. Well, I actually looked it up. It's Afik. Okay, I had to do that with all those words because I don't know how to pronounce them. I want you to notice right here in verse 1 that the, um, Israel went out to meet the Philistines. Now, we don't know for sure. I, I, I read several commentaries. One of them said they think the Israelites were the aggressors. The other said they believed that they were not. They were defending themselves against the Philistines. We don't know for sure. But we do know this, we notice right here that the Israelites did not consult with their new prophet Samuel before they went into battle. What that really means is they did not seek the Lord as to what to do in this situation. Because the Lord spoke through his prophets and that was the customary thing to do before you went out to battle. You would see the prophet of the Lord and ask, you know, Lord, do we go fight this battle? Do we hang back? What do we do? But they didn't do that. And it makes you wonder, why did they not go to Samuel and seek out the will of the Lord first? And I think there's a couple of thoughts that you might have. One is, was it because that Samuel was so young? Did they look at it and say, we're not going to accept his authority yet, he's just too young? Well, if that's the case, that's a bad precedent to set. So the first lesson, lesson for us to be learned today is that when God appoints a leader, no matter what that leader's age is, we are to respect the leadership that God's given them. And you know, you think about it, and God often uses, and I'm speaking to you young people now, God often uses young people in places of leadership. You see them throughout the Bible. Think of King David. David was still a young man when he slew Goliath. God used him in that great way and he was still a pretty young man when he was anointed king. It just took him a while for him to assume the throne. And then we think, of course, of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We don't know how old she was for sure, but somewhere at least in the realm of 12, 13, 15 to 18, somewhere in that realm. She was a young woman and yet we see when we read about Mary the spiritual maturity that she had and that God anointed her and gave her a place to do His will. And then we think about young Timothy, uh, who Paul mentored in the faith. He was a young preacher. He had his issues. (laughs) And youth could be a part of it. Then I think about Greg Laurie. I don't know if you guys know Greg's full story, but you know, he was basically 19 years old when he began evangelizing and in his early 20s when he got his own church and you've seen what's happened there. And I think of many other men who are very young. I think of Pastor Michael Lance. He wasn't exactly an old guy when he started his ministry as a senior pastor. He's getting old now, but oops. 1 Timothy 4, 11-13, Paul says this to Timothy, Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you were young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. We're not to look down on a leader because they're young. And the leader is not to allow people to look down on them because of their youth. And I think of Samuel and you know, what did it tell us in those first three chapters about Samuel? He came to know the Lord. Samuel was clearly now God's appointed prophet to Israel and it didn't matter how young he was. Now there's another thing for us to consider here. And I think it's important. Another possibility of why the elders, leaders of Israel did not go to the prophet. And I want you to think about this. Is it possible that the elders and the leaders of the armies really basically had no use for the prophets and priests of God at all? You know, you think about what was going on uh, with Eli and his sons, and you, you know it couldn't have been unnoticed by the people. When people in leadership, in church leadership, in ministry, are not following God's will, it's very noticeable. Why would they think that Samuel was going to be any different than those who had preceded him? Maybe they just had no use for them at all. Maybe they didn't think they had anything worth saying to them because of the hypocrisy they saw in the leadership. And I think of the application of that today. How many people do you know that you might say, well, you ought to go talk to a pastor. And they look at you and go, why would I ever do that? Because of some of the things they've seen over the years. Television preachers with huge ministries who fall into sin. Who they find out were doing it all for money. The hypocrisy they see and that's what they look at. How many people would never go to a pastor because of that? Well, we don't know for sure what the reason was, but I'll tell you this. If the Israelites wanted to win the battle, they should have consulted the Lord through Samuel before they went to fight. But unfortunately, they didn't, and we can look at the result. Let's go on to verse 2. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before The Philistines. Well, guess what? That was an easy question to answer. Notice that they said the Lord defeated us because they attributed everything to the Lord. Well, it's an easy question to answer. Number one, we just answered it. They didn't go to God first. They didn't consult Him. They didn't ask Him, should we go into battle? Or should we hang back? Should we retreat? What should we do? They just went ahead and fought. The second thing that they did wrong was they made an incorrect assumption. They figured that God would automatically make them victorious because, after all, they're his chosen people. We go into battle, God's with us. They made an incorrect assumption. Number three, God's covenant with Israel was conditional. In other words, for them to receive the blessings of God, they needed to obey Him. They needed to obey Him to receive His blessings. And at this case, and in this point in time, that was certainly not the case. I'm going to read to you, and if you want to turn there, go ahead and turn there real quickly. It's Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. And in your notes, you could also put down Leviticus 26, 9-17, through and you'll see it's very similar. Both of these passages tell us. Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 15, it says this, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and you do not carefully follow all His commands and His decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Verse 16, You will be cursed in the city, and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. Verse 18, The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. Verse 20, The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, And rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking Him. The Lord will plague you with diseases until He has destroyed you from the land that you are entering to possess. Verse 22, The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew which will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn from the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. Verse 25, The Lord will cause you to be what? defeated before your enemies. So it might be considered that this defeat was a direct result of the sin that was going on in Israel generally, but most importantly in the priesthood and the judge of Israel as well. Eli's sons, it told us back in chapter 2 verse 12, had no regard for the Lord. They were bringing judgment on themselves and the nation as a whole by their complete disregard, their disrespect, and their disobedience to God's law. And Eli was just as complicit because of his failure to deal with his sons in a proper fashion. So again, it was easy to see the defeat, why it happened. This was the beginning of the fulfillment of God's word to Eli. If you go back to 1 Samuel 3, verse 11. Go back there again just so we're reminded. 1 Samuel 3:11, And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. And at that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. Verse 13. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. That's from the NIV. And so, if we go back to what we just learned out of that previous verse... They were going to be cursed. They were going to be destroyed. Now, aren't you glad that we live under the new covenant? Amen? Aren't you glad that our promises from God are not conditional to our obedience the way they were in the Old Testament? And it's a good thing because we don't always do things the way God wants us to do them as well. But we still need to learn from what took place here. And there's some things that apply to us right here and now that we have to look at and say, Well, we can learn from this. Yes, our covenant is different, but still, but still God wants our obedience. So what can we learn here? Well, number one is let's not go into a battle unprepared. And I don't just mean a physical battle, although it may mean that. But I mean the battles of our everyday life. The things that we're going to face when we go to school, when we go to work. Maybe even when we come to church. The spiritual battles that we're going to face. The battles that we may face at home. We don't want to go into them unprepared. We don't want to go into them without consulting God and being led by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 7, 7-8 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. We need to go and seek the Lord before we go into battle. Number two, let's never assume the way they did that automatically, without consent from the Lord as to what we should be doing, we're going to be victorious because after all, I'm a Christian. So I'm going to win every single battle I face right no you may be fighting a battle that God doesn't want you to fight you cannot assume you're automatically going to be victorious and in fact there may be something in your life he needs to show you and he's going to allow you to fail now i can testify to that personally many times in my life james 4 james 4:15 4, and 16 put it in your notes He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. In other words, let's not just assume that we're going to have victory in every single area just because we're a Christian. We need to seek the Lord first. And then thirdly, just because we are under grace and not under law, don't presume that That you can be intentionally disobedient and still be blessed by God. I want to read that one again. Just because you're under grace and not under the law, do not presume that you can be intentionally disobedient and still be blessed by God. Galatians 6, 8, and 9. Galatians 6, 8, and 9. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. There is a law of reaping and sowing. And just because you're a Christian, you cannot presume that if you're living in disobedience to God, that He is going to bless you. Well, unfortunately, these guys compound the mistake they made. They still don't consult with God by going to see Samuel. Instead, they come up with a really bad idea. And as we're going to see, the results of this are disastrous. So, let's read on and see what happens here. The end of verse 3. Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts. Who sits above the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Kophni and Pinecos, I looked it up. Kophni and Penechaz were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. Verse 6. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Verse 8, Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? I just want you to note that they went from God to mighty gods. These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Verse 9. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel, not 4,000, but 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken and the two sons of Eli Kophni and, however I said the other one, died. Now, as you were reading along with me here, You might have been thinking about the statement I just made and and asking, well, why was it a bad idea to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle and why didn't that work? I mean, after all, isn't that what Moses and Joshua did? Well, that's a good question. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the Church tab. You can follow us on Instagram, at livingtruthcorona, or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org.
1: In 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see Israel defeated. We see uh, interesting language. The people, after about 4,000 men die on the battlefield, the people came into the camp and asked the question this way, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take our take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. There was a recognition in Israel that The Lord was behind their defeat. And it is interesting because, you know, oftentimes when we think about victories in the Christian life, we automatically think, well, you know, if we're thinking correctly, God gave me the victory here. I have the victory through my Lord Jesus Christ. And I guess it's possible that we could attribute victories to God. And maybe maybe God wasn't in the victory. That's an interesting concept to consider, that maybe sometimes we win and it's not the best thing for us. But here, my original thought was more about spiritual victories, and certainly God wants us to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's what we are. But we certainly have victories and defeats as we go along in the Christian life. Sometimes we experience victory over the flesh, over the world, over the enemy, as we put on the full armor of God. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we fall. And Israel was asking a very good question after they lost 4,000 people on the battlefield. That's Certainly, time to do some soul searching, and but they the way they framed the question was, where was God, or more specifically, why did God defeat us today? You know, whenever we suffer a loss, and this of course was a tragic loss for the the nation, it does begin to cause us to do some soul searching. You know, we could lose a job, or uh, you know, go through something personally, and we begin to ask, Lord, where are you? Or What may you be saying to me? Now, I don't believe that everything in life needs to be measured that way. But I think that God can work all things together for good and to conform us more into the image of His Son. Thank you for listening to today's program. Our mission is to get the truth of God's Word out. This is our passion. We want to impact as many people as possible. And we have an opportunity to expand this radio program. And we need you, the listener, to partner with us in prayer and in giving. You can give to our ministry through our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org.